This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I am Buzz Eisenberg. And Buzz, you and I spent a significant part of our lives working on Guantanamo cases, you more than I, but we worked our first Guantanamo case together and were successful in having a young man released early from Guantanamo. You have maintained your representation of Guantanamo detainees for many years, and I know this is a topic and the people who have been detained there uh, are near and dear to your heart. You have, well, it's really breaking news, I think, for most of our listeners. What has just happened with regard to, to Guantanamo? What just happened is the first, what we call HVD, high-value detainee, was transferred um, from Guantanamo to Belize, to the country of Belize. Uh, he had been in Guantanamo since 2003. He was a Pakistani, although he went to school here in the United States. He's the only Guantanamo detainee out of 780 or so who ever was a resident alien um, here in the United States. And he has now, uh, he's in Belize with his attorney. Uh, he's so happy. I've been in contact with his attorney, Wells, his remarkable attorney, Wells Dixon, who's been working on these cases for two decades. Um, and there he is. He and the also, detainee's name, former detainee's name? Majid Khan, K-H-A-N. Majid uh, uh, was internationally on everybody, on the tips of everybody's lips because uh, he was one of those dark site uh, detainees who was horrifically tortured. It's, it's early in the morning, and I just, I'll only give one example. When he refused to eat in 2014, CIA personnel, and this was in the Senate uh, Intelligence Committee report, Diane Feinstein's report, um, they took his lunch plate of raisins, nuts, pasta, and hummus, and they pureed it, and then they put it in a baster and put it in his uh, rectum, uh, in the longest and widest tube they could find, according to one torturer. Uh, Wells Dixon called that forcible rape. and um, once, Which it is. Which it is, and wanted to hold people responsible. There's so many bad things I can tell you about his treatment, but what I can tell you right now is his daughter and his, that he's never met. His daughter was born right after he was taken in 2003. His daughter and his wife are on their way to the Central American 2003. Country. He's been in for 20 years. Been in for 20 years, and much of that held in isolation and tortured prior to 2014. Well, isola isolation is just a fancy word for solitary confinement, which Amnesty International defines as as torture. So he was tortured, literally tortured physically, and then he was tortured emotionally and otherwise through the solitary confinement. Exactly. Majid Khan, as you just said, not only Amnesty International, but Physicians for Human Rights have done a medical uh, analysis of why torture, why uh, uh, isolation is in fact torture. But, you know, everything from uh, nudity and sexual stuff and keeping them up and air conditioning in it for a person from a uh, tropical climate. Uh, he was tortured Yeah, and tortured. They, they, what they would do in Guantanamo is they'd take the air conditioning and they'd put it on so it's like 38 degrees and give the person nothing to wear except this tiny little sheet, and they would literally freeze, not to death, because they keep him just alive to torture him. Exactly, Bill. And, and so the, the story of Majid is after he comes from the dark side to Guantanamo, he has, he's, a, he's beaten, and so he cooperates, and he, he talks... He pleads guilty, one of the two men that have pled guilty in the military commission to a, I think it was a 10-year uh, sentence, which he was, he has been served with, 
I mean, he has served. Uh, I think a year ago he wrapped up his sentence. So I guess what we need to know is how many men are there? 34. How many of them have been cleared for, similarly cleared for transfer? 20, um, leaving only 14. The, um, the trials that are on schedule are probably not going to happen because the evidence has been bespoiled by torture, as it was in Majid's case. But he decided to, there's an end point if I plead guilty. He pled guilty, there's an end point. And I am so happy for him and his lawyers who have worked so hard for so long. So uh, you, you say he was transferred. That means he was released. Is that no, right? No, it no, does not. No, release is here. We're opening the prison gates. Walk out into the street. Nobody. Well, you hit. can't walk out in the streets in Guantanamo. It's a U.S. Navy base. Yeah, exactly. So nobody can be released. You can be released into the into the air uh, into an airplane to go to the United States or wherever you want. Well, we actually can't come to the United States because Congress has a law that prohibits any transfer. We have demanded that dozens and dozens of other countries take. Guantanamo detainees, but, but the United we? States is not one of those countries that will take a Guantanamo detainee, even though we're responsible for the Guantanamo detainees. That's exactly right. So yeah. the person's in Belize. Tell me his name again. Majid, M-A-J-I-D, like magic with a D instead of a C at the end, and Khan, K-H-A-N. And he is elated, uh, overjoyed. His lawyer, uh, his lawyer used both of those words. I think I showed you the text yesterday, Bill. And... So he's in Belize. Does that mean that Belize is his country, where he is going, the country where he's going to live for the rest of his life? Well, I don't know about the rest of his life, but they've, they've granted him formal legal status. They're arranging a job. His uh, wife and daughter are coming there uh, to join him. From so, where, or can you say? From Pakistan, yeah. And that just happened? Yesterday, and so that makes today... I, wanna, I guess it's a good day. It, it, you know, I keep refocusing on... I don't want people to forget the horrors of, of Guantanamo. I want people to remember what it's like to write and demand that these other 20 people that are cleared for transfer, that some negotiations happen so they can get the heck out of that dreadful place. So I want to go back to one thing you said. We just have a minute left in the segment. Uh, you said that he was cleared for release a year ago. Cleared for transfer, yep. What's been happening in the last year? Wow, Bill. You why, are why, a good if you're questioner. Clear, you're cleared for transfer. Why is the person still there? Or was he still there for another year? You, you always know exactly what the right question is, and the answer is, oh, I don't have security clearance anymore, and I can't tell you, but what I do know is every transfer now is a product of negotiations because the United States said, these are the worst of the worst. Now, will you take them? We won't. So other countries say, you won't. You say they were the worst. Why should we take them? And usually there are agreements that we can't know about. I know about what happened with Algeria, and I know about what happened with Uruguay because I had security clearance at the time. And um, We're going like to let you go because that. we like you being on the outside, not on the inside. Bus. Me too. Me too. We're going to leave it there. We'll take a quick break, and we will be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Modest, very minimal increase in the police budget, largely uh, due to just regular contractual um, obligations. Holyoke is nothing like Northampton and Greenfield. The quality of life uh, issues or demographics, very, very different. So I can never compare our police departments. The challenges we have going on in our city are very, very different. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. 
Why do the same old thing to celebrate Valentine's Day? Kelsey Flynn here inviting you to join me, Tara Brewster, and the one and only Monty Belmonte, East Hampton Mayor Nicole LaChapelle, DA Dave Sullivan, and Zara Bodie from the Sweetback Sisters to the Big Love Little Performances Benefit for CHD's Big Brothers Big Sisters of Hampshire County. This lip sync karaoke contest has everything to woo your Valentine or make it a Galentine's Day. Buy tickets or enter to perform at runreg.com forward slash big love little performances. It's all happening on Thursday, February 9th at the Boylston Rooms in East Hampton. Be there and share the love for Big Brothers Big Sisters of Hampshire County. Check it out on Facebook. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. Well, I hope we have Max Page. We had Max Page with us just a minute ago. I know we did. I saw him on Skype. But where has Max gone? I see I see his initials. Hello, I'm here, Will. Still? You are there. Terrific, Max. Thank you for being with us. A lot going on. So let me turn the microphone over to you. What do you want to share with our listeners this morning? Max Page, for our listeners who are just joining our show and are just with us for the first time, Max is with us every Friday for a state you, what we, a segment we call Your State You. Max is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. Max, talk to us. Thank you, Bill. I am joined this morning by my vice president, Deb McCarthy. We're going to talk about the Thrive Act, uh, which is about ending the tyranny on, uh, of the high-stakes testing regime and ending state receivership of public schools. And Deb McCarthy, vice president, fifth grade teacher from Hull, has been leading that effort. Good morning, Deb. Tell us about this effort and why it's so important. Uh, good morning, Max, and thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Uh, this legislation... Uh, can, can I interrupt for one to... second, Deb? Is that accent something you had to practice, or do you just get it naturally? It's natural. <laughs> just like my passion is natural to end the harm and let students thrive. Uh, and so thank you for noticing the accent and now let me address the passion. Uh, as an educator who had 25 years in a fifth grade classroom, uh, I was forced to leave so that I could use my voice and advocate for all students. Uh, and this bill does that. It stops the high stakes, punitive rank and shame accountability system that has been harming students whether or not they're in the highest performing communities or in the lowest performing communities, because we have reduced our students to a test score and our students are so much more than that. And this bill will eliminate the uh, requirement to have your high school career be singled to one test score. Uh, and it will also deal with uh, the removal of receivership 
the MCAS will still be there. Uh, we will use the uh, assessment for what it was meant to do, which is to be holistic in our pedagogy and to teach the multiple intelligence so that all students can thrive. Has the bill passed? What's the status? I'm a little un unclear about that. No, we've just filed it. You just filed the bill. So it's in the House. It has a House number and a Senate number. And we are in for a long fight about this, yes or no? I don't think it's going to be as long as some folks uh, think. I think we have a really strong coalition. We've been working at this for years, and this time around, uh, the talking points and the narrative seem to be the popular one. Max, let me turn the microphone back over to you. Thanks, Bill. Yes, um, it's important to note that uh, this this is there's good signals in the sense that the new governor has indicated all throughout the campaign that she wants to take a new look at the MCAS and the whole um, testing regime, as has the Senate president. And this bill is sponsored uh, in part by Senator Joe Comerford, the lead sponsor in the Senate from our area, um, as well as a number of other um, individuals. And then the list of co-sponsors is growing. So it's worth, Deb, maybe just walking through quickly what the key parts of this. You went through them, but look, Part one, um, you mentioned getting rid of the, the graduation requirement. How many states require passing a standardized test to get a high school diploma? There's only 11 left uh, currently uh, because uh, folks know that one test score is not a measure of one's uh, experiences pre-K through 12 in the school. Could, yeah, you, could you stop there for like one? 50. Could you stop there for one second, both Max and Deb? Um, because Deb just said there are only eleven states left that still require the pass passing a high. I think it might have shrunk actually. Yeah, it actually even eight. made a mistake. <laughs> it's now down to eight. <laughs> but there was yeah. at one point almost every state because it was a requirement of the No Child Left Behind Act, as I recall, and the states found that these high states testing. No, I've got it wrong. Um, Go I, ahead, Deb. I, I'd like to. I'd like so, to hear. There is a federal requirement that uh, we have to assess students, but there is no federal requirement that says that receiving a high school diploma is dependent upon one single test. And so, our uh, coalition is focused on a comprehensive assessment. Uh, of students rather than one moment in time, one single test score. Yep. So the test, as I understand it, will if when this bill passes, schools will still be using MCAS. It will be, but it will be an assessment tool to see how students are doing, not a requirement in order to get a diploma. Do, do I have that right? <laughs> yeah, exactly and you know right. what, uh, Bill, we assess all the time, right? Uh, we have the capacity. You know, I have been teaching a long time. So in the beginning, when the MCAS first rolled out, that really was uh, the only data that we had in front of us. But now we have online capacity to assess our students in real time. We get the results immediately. I have the opportunity as an educator to address my curriculum and best practices the next day or actually even in that moment in time and have a conversation with the learner. Whereas the MCAS data, I never receive until six months after the fact 
when my students have already moved on to the next grade. Uh, so we have the capacity to assess in real time and use that for what it was meant to do. I, I have a reaction to, uh, look, I'm not an educator, but what you just described strikes me as a, I don't know how to put this, uh, really, it's kind of stupid, unhelpful, illogical system. Hi, we're going to assess the students, and once they're no longer here, it's for me to work with them, then I'll get the results. How did we possibly get to that point? You know what? Because it has become about ranking and shaming, creating a system of winner, winners and losers, and it really has turned this accountability regime into an opportunity chasm, right? We have districts where students have science labs in fifth grade, they have librarians, they have French immersion programs, and then on the other side of the spectrum, you have schools without the resources who their students spend their day trying to pass a test. Just want to be crystal clear that we have been, it's been so clearly shown over and over that uh, there is such a close link between income and MCAS scores. So we offer a test where we can predict the scores overall in a community um, in advance because it is such uh, a tight link between uh, income and those scores. So if we can predict the, the scores in advance, there's no really um, point of putting people through this uh, exercise, which wastes upwards of 25 days in terms of the test taking and the test prep in schools, especially schools that um, have the greatest needs. I am so glad that you're that the MTA has undertaken this effort and it, it, it's before the legislature. But I have to ask Florida Governor Ron DeRacist, I think is that his name? Ron DeRacist, and, and I hear that maybe the college boards is amending the college boards so uh, to el eliminate uh, critical race theory and Black Lives Matter and other. During this Black History Month, you hear from your colleagues in Florida. Do you have opinions about that? Either one of you, Deb or Max. Max? Well, I mean, clearly it's appalling what is going on in Florida, and it is appalling if the college board see what appears to be just um, bowing to that political pressure to rewrite our history, rewrite curriculum based on the needs of um, um, this uh, retrograde governor. We have standards, and I think Deb can speak to that as an elementary educator, who, act, who actually the, the standards we need it's uh, and are good. And if as long as we stick to them and don't get influenced by politics around the country, having good standards that are constantly updated with educator involvement are a good thing. It, but we evaluate whether a school's curriculum and whether kids are succeeding based on educators' evaluation of their of their progress, not by a standardized test made by a billion-dollar uh, company called Pearson. Deb, do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, just real quickly, I've been talking a lot lately, uh, uh, and especially uh, with the Board of Education last week, and I talk about privilege. And, you know, we understand economic privilege. We understand gender privilege, race privilege, but we also have an academic privilege. And the only thing that a test does is measure those who are good test takers. Year after year after year, I see harm done to students in my classroom who are intelligent, creative, bright, 
think outside of the box, but they are not the best test takers. These tests are designed to trick students, and it's really about the ability to notice the minutiae details in a multiple choice question or locating that exact passage uh, and spitting it back out in written format. They do not measure the multitude of, of uh, intelligence, excuse me. So uh, I, I don't, I don't want to, we've got two different strands of, of conversation going on here. One is the uh, college boards. The other is the MCAS here in Massachusetts. Uh, I, I'd like to return to MCAS in Massachusetts, unless uh, you'd like to make a further comment on the college boards and what uh, Governor DeSantis has done. Max? No, that's good. Let's get back to our MCAS, which was like a hopeful, hopeful moment. Yeah, to make some change. Yeah, um, I, I, I'd like to. I'd like to know this, uh, Deb McCarthy, Vice President of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. What you have said is that this bill, of which our Senator Joe Comerford is a sponsor, if and when I think when is more operative word, uh, it passes the state legislature and is signed by Governor Maura Healy. When that happens. MCAS will still exist. MCAS is going to be given to the students. I take in the same grades, including the 10th grade. What will be eliminated is the passing of the test as a requirement for receiving a high school diploma. Okay, so far so good. Here's what I don't understand. What you just said is that what what the MCAS really does is t- is is divide those students who are really good multiple choice test takers from those who are not. It doesn't measure intelligence. It doesn't measure uh, abilities to do uh, high school or college work. It doesn't do all sorts of things. And yet it it has been, and we are now one of eight states that requires such a test for a high school diploma. Um, It doesn't do anything useful in terms of measuring accomplishment and educational attainment. Got that. So why is it useful at all in terms of an assessment, being an assessment tool? Because it's a billion-dollar industry. Uh, Because it lifts up privilege. Because it benefits the winners, right? And so so there are some folks who uh, benefit quite well because if the test scores are high, then your real estate is high in that community. So, um, So there are some winners in this system. You know, but I want to also just return quickly because you definitely are understanding the narrative. Uh, But the other piece of this is, like, we have the ability to do performance assessments where we look at a wide range of abilities, right? When Max and I were in the speaker's office about a month ago, I couldn't help but notice all the incredible craftsmanship of the board in that office. And then today with that uh, suit. Uh, the Senate president. Yes, yeah, sorry, yeah. wrong one. Um, and, uh, you know, with today, with the filing of that lawsuit uh, around students being denied access to vocational schools, when I was growing up, we had shop in our school. You could take that in the middle school level and have the opportunity for these vocational career experiences in your school. But with an austerity narrative and the testing regime, they eliminated all of this because that wasn't what was considered important to measure, and we lost that. 
And all these years later, my grandchildren go to the same school system that I went to, and there are no vocational opportunities within the high school that were there when I graduated in 1978. Max, let me ask you this question because we just have a minute or two left. This is obviously an important bill. It is, as Deb McCarthy describes it, the vice president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, and thank you so much again, Deb, for being with us today. Um, uh, As she describes it, um, this bill, and you describe it, this bill really has a chance, finally, for Massachusetts to do something really important and to undo a serious legislative mistake. What can our listeners do? What is, is, is this just something that's now going to go behind closed doors and we'll be told at the end what happens? Or is there something that persons who care about education, care about students, care about their, uh, those persons who are uh, assigned the wrong birth, uh, 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 zip code at birth? T- tell us what we can do. Well, so there's a series of things. Right now, the goal is to get as many co-sponsors in both the Senate and the House of Representatives. So anyone listening can just call their their state rep or senator and say, sign on to the chair to the Thrive Act. It's called the Thrive Act. They will know what that is, um, and be a co-sponsor to that. And I will note that uh, Senator Gomez, Adam Gomez, from uh, Springfield, is also kind of one of a key co co-sponsor to this already. And that will be the start. But then we are going to have informational meetings and other kinds of actions that will be be coming up in order to um, pressure the movement on this. The key thing is we've laid out the the blueprint for revising what has been a failed experiment in MCAS and failed experiment in receivership. And the last thing I'll say is one of the things the Thrive Act does is create an ongoing commission to make a true, authentic, whole child assessment system. As Deb said at the beginning, we believe in assessment. Educators do that every single day and want to be part of building an assessment that looks at all the goals that we have for our public schools. Okay. So I actually, I can't let you go. I, I have another question. Um, when MCAS was first proposed many years ago, I can't remember how many years ago now, and was part of uh, our educational system in Massachusetts, the argument for it, was that a high school diploma should stand for something. And unless we have a test near the end to measure the student's attainment in school, then we don't know if the high school diploma is actually worth the paper it's printed on. And it's really important that employers know that uh, other uh, institutions and other institutions of higher education know that that high school diploma is, in fact, that stands for something. So will this new assessment do that? Will these new assessments tools actually uh, fulfill the promise of what was made for MCAS that it is so abysmally failed at? Deb McCarthy? Uh, Thank you for the question. I'm just going to tell you that the only thing that the MCAS stand for is who is a good test taker. It was never really a measure of all of the skills required to prove competency of a pre-K through 12 public education. It simply denied those who are not good test takers the opportunity to demonstrate just how intelligent they were. Um, And so, yes, this new assessment 
this performance assessment task plus the information from the MCAS. I mean, the MCAS is still going to be given. You're just not going to be denied the opportunity of a high school diploma because you're not a good test taker. And you're not going to have to spend day after day after day after day after day teaching kids how to take a test. I'm going to stop the harm and I'm going to let students thrive. Mm. Max, I don't think you can improve on that statement, but we'll give you a, we'll give you a 30, no, 30 seconds. No, I mean, Deb, Deb has been passionate about this issue because she has seen the harm it's done, how it's undermined the education in the schools that she went to, that her mother taught in, that she taught in for so many years. I will say that nearby we have the city of Holyoke, and part of the reason it was put into receivership, that is taken over by the state, denied that kind of good democratic running of those schools is because of low MCAS scores, which of course are tied to income. And so what you have there is you've you can you have this this uh, kind of this monster of a machine that then leads to a takeover that has proven nothing. I mean, it has done nothing to improve schools there. It has sent educators flying, fleeing away. Turnover is rapid. So what we're trying to do is defang this system, and maybe it can be useful again. And Deb and I both grew up in a time when we took standardized tests as a diagnostic. They might have been some had some use. But if you defang it, maybe it can go back to the size and value that it it once had and not dominate our schools the way the MCAS has come to. Okay, we're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Max Page, who is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, and Deb McCarthy, the vice president of the MTA. Thank you both so very much. Really appreciate it. And listeners, go talk to your reps. Go talk to your senator. Stop the harm. Let students thrive. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is Bill Newman. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Warming centers are open today and tomorrow for people to come in out of the cold. The Greenfield Public Library will be open today and tomorrow. The Johnson Community Center in Greenfield will be open today from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. In Northampton, the Manic Community Center on Elm Street is open today and tomorrow from 9 to 4 and Sunday from noon to 4. The Northampton Senior Center is open today from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. And the lobby at the Northampton Police Department is open 24-7. Search committee members agreed this week to advance a pair of out-of-state finalists for the top job at UMass Amherst. More than six months after officials launched a screening process to select the next chancellor for the University of Massachusetts System's flagship campus, the search committee voted unanimously to advance University of Illinois Chicago interim Chancellor Javier Reyes and Oklahoma State University College of Engineering, Architecture, and Technology Dean Paul Tokalski to the final round. Both candidates plan to visit the Amherst campus in the coming weeks. Joan Holliday, WHMP News. And next Wednesday, February 8th, the town of Irving will be hosting a community conversation with MassDOT on the reconstruction and improvements to Route 2 in the Farley area from Old State Road through Mountain Road. Safety concerns will be the focus of the meeting, particularly around Holmes Avenue in the intersections between Farley Village and Route 2. 
Mostly sunny, windy, and very cold today. Actual high temperatures will happen this morning in the teens. will be in the single digits potentially as early as noon, with the wind making it feel like it's below zero all day. Mostly clear, windy, with temperatures feeling like they're in the 20s and 30s below zero tonight. Actual air temperature of 8 below to 14 below. Mostly sunny, less wind on Saturday, a high of 14 to 18. Mostly cloudy, back into the 40s on Sunday. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Una colaboración entre Enlace de Familias, Neighbor to Neighbor, Nuevo Camino, la Unión de Inquilinos de Western Massachusetts y Nueva Esperanza están organizando un taller para la comunidad titulado Conozca Sus Derechos. Este es un esfuerzo conjunto para educar a los inquilinos sobre sus derechos como arrendatarios. El taller Conoce Tus Derechos se llevará a cabo el lunes 6 de febrero a las 6 de la tarde en Enlace de Familias, ubicado en el 299 de Main Street en Holyoke, Massachusetts. Se proporcionarán alimentos cuidado de niños y servicio de interpretación al español. Los inquilinos del área metropolitana de Springfield están invitados a escuchar directamente de Community Legal Aid, abogados de inquilinos y Mass Fair Housing sobre cuáles son sus derechos. En las últimas décadas, la vivienda se ha convertido en un negocio rentable, mientras que la vida de los inquilinos se ha vuelto cada vez más difícil y la vivienda más insegura. Este taller proporciona un espacio confidencial para inquilinos para compartir sus preocupaciones y hacer preguntas. En otras informaciones, los funcionarios de la ciudad de Holyoke están comunicando a los negocios, empresas y organizaciones con respecto a la renovación de licencias de venta y consumo de alcohol anuales y por temporada. El personal de licencias de Holyoke trabaja con los solicitantes y los departamentos de la ciudad para confirmar el cumplimiento tributario actualizado, programar inspecciones y recopilar toda la información relevante. Durante el proceso de renovación de 2022, dijo Vega, casi una docena de negocios estaban obligados a pagar impuestos atrasados a la ciudad antes de que se les pudiera emitir su licencia 2023. Hasta que se completen las inspecciones y el Departamento de Bomberos y el Departamento de Edificios planteen inquietudes y hayan sido atendidas, estos establecimientos no deben vender ni servir alcohol. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And what we do at this time on Fridays is we have a segment called Artbeat, and we are going to get to that in just a moment. But first, I would like to share with you an interview of Jim Armenti by Steve Sanderson that we recorded. We stole it from one of our colleagues here at the radio station. We want to share it with you. I'm talking with the one and only Jim Armenti, local musician, songwriter, most famous for, I guess, the Lonesome Brothers. How long have the Lonesome Brothers been around, Jim Armenti? We're in our 38th year, Steve. That's almost as old as me, Jim. Almost, almost. We started just, <laughs> we heard you were coming. We figured, hey, let's start a band. <laughs> right on. So you're doing something different. It's called Sun on the Muddy. Are you doing poems now? Are you just a straight, straight up poet? I'm just, well, it's just, a, you know, it's another thing. I make things, Steve. That's what I do. I make things. During the COVID, I made a lot of handles for my hatchet heads and axes. 
and on my neighbor's little pitchfork. I made handles and poems. You made me a walking stick when I, I broke my ankle. I made a crook is what those are called. I love my crook. Tell me about your poems. Uh, well, in the, in, again, in the COVID, a friend of mine was uh, doing some paintings on small pieces of uh, small biology dividers or something, and um, like three by five, and uh, every day I would get an, a picture of that in my email, and I would write a poem. So I ended up with 700-plus poems. Did you just say 700? Something like that. It went on and on. Yes. Sometimes you would group three together and I'd make another poem about the three. I, I just couldn't let one go by. Uh, but there were all sorts of poems about, you know, all kinds of stuff. She was doing, she, she and I share a, a love of, uh, of overlooked things, things that we use every day, like a toothbrush that we don't give credit to or don't think about much. And, and she's a very fine artist. So... How are you presenting this as a live show? So what ends up happening is I go to the dump shed in West Hampton, the dump where I live, and I run into another buddy of mine, uh, Dan Lombardo. He's an editor, among many other things that he does, dramaturge, and he was a uh, reference librarian. You know, he had read about the uh, poems in the Gazette. There was a story in the Gazette because we did a show in Concord, Mass. He says, what are you going to do with all those poems? And I said, I'm not going to do anything with those poems because I, I write them. I, I'm not, I can't go back and look at them or do anything about them. I don't like doing that. And he said, I love doing that. And I gave him the 700-plus poems on a thumb drive, and he <laughs> organized them. And, uh, and he found a memoir among them. So all, all of the poems are not as they are in this book, which are all sort of about my life as growing up in Michigan and moving here and then my kids growing up and playing in bands and, and then living out here in Western Massachusetts. And, and so he organized that into a, a very nice narrative. And that's why we have a book, which is published by Leveler's Press. At some point, it was evident that the paintings I worked from originally were not going to be included in this book. And I, another friend of mine, Dave Mataloni, I had noticed was putting up beautiful photographs that he was making of puddles, reflections in puddles. And I just sent a note to Dave, and I said, Dave, how would you like to, you know, help me illustrate this book of poems? And anyway, so that, that's why we have that book. The title, Sun on the Muddy, comes from a song I wrote about playing in the muck in uh, swamps, which I do whenever I can. So the event is at the Parlor Room, which now is a nonprofit. First of all, it's a book release and a book signing. Mm -hmm. uh, and secondly, Dave made uh, these nice slideshows of lots of his photographs over music that either from most of them are my solo stuff, but some of them are Lonesome Brothers tracks. Then in the middle, I'll read five or six poems from the book, and then I'm going to play a set of music. So it's kind of a party, and then we're going to sign some books some more. So that's, that that's what it is. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. Tell us when that is, Jim. That is February 5th, a uh, Sunday, in between all the football action at 2.30, 2.30 to 4 o'clock at the Parlor Room. So we can find out more about that at theparlorroom.org. Jim, thanks for all the music, and thanks for the walking stick or the crook. Good talking to you. You're welcome. Thank you, Steve. And when we come back, we will have... Heartbeat, right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Weinzick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Weinzick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and online at winesicknursery.com. 
Are you organized, detail-oriented, responsible, fun-loving, and a team player? The Northampton Radio Group is looking for you. We've currently got an opening for a part-time office assistant. The job is right out front, so you have to like people. A knowledge of Microsoft Office is essential, and a sense of humor is a must. Send your resume and cover letter to Office Position, Northampton Radio Group, 15 Hampton Avenue, Northampton, Mass., 01060. Or email jobs at whmp.com. Saga Communications is an equal opportunity employer. You spend seven or eight hours a night together, and you're supposed to decide if you're right for each other in a matter of minutes? This has never made sense to me. So, when you're in my store, trying to decide which mattress is right for you, at some point, I think you and I just need to stop talking. I need to leave you alone, give you plenty of time to lay down, and maybe even forget you're in a furniture store. Hi, it's Robin. Robin from Talon. Think about it. Seven or eight hours, night after night, And what do you really know about mattresses? I don't mean to make it daunting or complicated. I just think you need two things, information and time. If I give you as much information as you want and as much time as you need, I think you'll settle on a mattress you'll be happy with. At least that's the way it seems to go for most people. Talon Furniture, the small, unhurried furniture and mattress store just down the hill from Amherst College. Fill in the blanks. H-A-M-B blank R-G-E-R. You get it? How about B blank T-T-E-R L blank N-C-H. I don't have a hard time filling in the blanks. You? If you need to fill in the blanks on your grocery list, hop into State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits right in downtown Northampton. Swing into their big free parking lot between classes before pickup, after drop-off, and fill in the blanks on your grocery list. Or pick up a quick stroller sandwich for lunch for you or your kids. Or heck, you could do all of your grocery shopping there. No blanks left on the list. And did I mention that they're called State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits? You could also pick up some L-I-Q blank O-R. You can fill in all the blanks on your grocery list at State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits on State Street, downtown Northampton. A little bit of hammering and a little bit of humoring. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Home improvement ideas and advice. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Sundays at noon, 1015, 1400, WHMP. The beat goes on. The beat goes on. And this is Artbeat. Our usual host is Donabelle Cassis, and Donabelle is, as we say, on assignment, which is just code for she's on vacation. Uh, <laughs> in for Donabelle Cassis, we have Kim Carlino, another one of our local, lo- distinguished uh, local artists. So, Kim Carlino, let me turn the microphone over to you. The pleasure and honor of the introduction of our very special guest today is yours. Kim. Sure. Thanks, Bill. Uh, welcome, Nayana Lafond, to Artbeat. Nice to have you here. Thank uh, you. So Na- Nayana Lafond is an artist, an art activist, a curator, an organizer, um, works across many different mediums. And she's here to talk about her current exhibition, Portraits in Red a Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, at the Augusta Savage Gallery at 
um, UMass Amherst in the New Africa House. Um, so that exhibition just opened January 30th and runs through May 12th. So fortunately, there's a lot of time um, to get over there to see it. Um, I just wanted to say a couple um, words about, um, you know, about this epidemic and, you know, the CDC reports that murder is the third leading cause of death for Indigenous women under the age of 24. Um, and you list on your site that Indigenous women and girls are 11 times more likely to be victims of violence in their lifetime. And Indigenous men are four times more likely of which the majority of perpetrators of these crimes are non-Indigenous. So, um, you know, what drew you to paint the first portrait in this series? And could you possibly have imagined how this series has grown? Well, I couldn't have possibly imagined how the series has, gr has grown because I never intended it to even be a series. The first portrait I painted on May 5th of 2020 during quarantine. I was on a group called Social Distance Powwow on Facebook, which May 5th is the day of remembrance for missing and murdered Indigenous people. So I was on this group and I saw a makeup selfie done by a woman from Saskatchewan named Lorena Bear. And I reached out to her to paint her for my, my contribution to the awareness raising that was happening in that group that day. I painted that one, <clears throat> excuse me, painting and I did not anticipate the result. The response was so overwhelming. I decided, well, I'm stuck at home like everyone else. I'll paint another. And the response to that was even more that I put one post out that said, if anyone would want me to paint them or their loved one, I would do so and received 25 the first day. So it was in that moment I realized I couldn't cherry pick and I had to paint them all and they just have never stopped coming. Wow. And I see behind you, you, you have um, one of these portraits and, you know, I think they're, they're all in monochromatic and black, uh, gray, white with, um, with red. And tell me a little bit about the significance of the color palette. In a lot of indigenous cultures, red is the only color that spirits can see. So I paint them in black and white with anything that was already on them that was red remains red. And then I will add the red handprint. Some who are still alive will send it with that red hand already. But I, I add that because it's the symbol for the missing and murdered indigenous people's movement. And it symbolizes being silenced. But, but I deliberately paint them in this way with black and white and red being the only visible color because I want them to be seen by the spirits of the dead. Do you know the stories of these individuals who you are painting? Do the requests come with uh, information or something that gives you some sense of who to paint and how to paint them? Yeah, how it typically goes is I'll receive a message usually through social media or through my website and it's from a family member or the individual wanting to be painted. So we will talk about why they want to be painted before I even do it. And through that process, I'll find out the stories. I've painted 108 so far and I, I know all of their stories and all of them by name. And are there themes that, that connect them? 
Yeah, there are themes that run through all of the cases, but each case is also unique. And depending on what part of North America the person is from, they're more likely to have certain causes rather than others and things like that that I've noticed. I don't pick who comes to me, so it's kind of a mixed bag from everywhere, which I like because I can get a real sense of what's actually going on that way. Are there certain uh, native uh, uh, descendants of native nations uh, who are more uh, representative, more represented in the requests that you receive? And uh, do they send you a photograph? Do you get some kind of, I mean, how do you do this? Well, there aren't any more represented than others at this point. It, it seems to be pretty evenly divided between the U.S. and Canada, and I haven't noticed higher amounts from any specific tribal areas. Um, I've noticed higher amounts from highly concentrated city areas that have higher numbers anyway, like Seattle and places like that. But um, are there stories that you've received that, that have really moved you in unexpected ways? Yeah, absolutely. And just to answer your other question, I do work from photographs. You do? Um, okay. Yeah. Yes, quite a few stories. There's a story of one family from Regina, Saskatchewan, who first contacted me to paint their nieces, Tanya and Chantel, who'd both been murdered by their boyfriends, one in 2018, the other in 2020. They then contacted me to paint their other niece, Dons, who had been assaulted and murdered in 2014. Sadly, I then heard from them again because their 17-year-old daughter's body, her name was Willow, was found on May 5th, 2021. Oh, my. Wow. My goodness. So um, I have, uh, sadly, that's not a unique story. There's a couple like that. Are they all sad stories, or are there some that are happy? There are survivors that I've painted, and there are activists who are really working hard and raising their voice and giving hope. I try to make sure to include them because it is a lot of heavy trauma to go through an exhibit like that, and I want to leave people both with a deeper understanding of the trauma, but also with a sense of hope. So there is some hope in that there are people surviving and those people are raising their voices and being heard finally. Let me turn the microphone back over to Kim Carlino. Kim? Yes. So you have, how many portraits are on view at the Augusta Savage Gallery? 20, I believe, and including two of my largest ones. And you have several exhibitions that are traveling across the country this year as well, correct? Yes, that's correct. I just actually last night was the opening for the first exhibit on a Pacific Northwest tour that will go for the next two to three years. I have a group show tour out right now with the Institute of American Indian Studies Museum. There will be a tour starting at some point through the Emerson Museum. And then I also have a show opening at Beacon Gallery in Boston in about two weeks. Mm -hmm. That's that's great. And um, coming up this um, Wednesday, Friday the 8th, you're giving an artist talk at UMass at 6 p.m., right? Are there any other events associated um, with this exhibition at UMass? 
Yes, um, Not To Be Missed is a performance of How We Go Missing by the Anishinaabe Theater Exchange. Um, I don't have the exact date on that in front of me, but if you go to the UMass website, you can find that. And that really can be missed. I saw a preview of it and it was really moving. There's a couple other events related to them as well. I think we need to leave it there. I would really like to thank Nayana Lafond. Thank you. I can't wait to see your exhibit at the uh, Augusta Savage Gallery. And Kim Carlino, thank you for arranging this spectacularly wonderful, informative, interesting, sad, moving, joyous interview. Thank you so very much. This has been Artbeat. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Nayana. Thank you. This week's Shop Tuesday is Slancha. This Tuesday at 9 a.m., Slancha releases gift certificates for their restaurant in Holyoke. High up on Jarvis Avenue with a view of Holyoke and beyond, good food and drink, lunch and dinner daily, plus a private upstairs party room with a bar. They say it on the old sod and they say it in Holyoke. Slancha, available this Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Forbes Library Outreach Delivery Service caters to residents of any age who are homebound due to short or long-term disability in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. A volunteer will deliver your specific requests or select materials for you based on your interests. We offer books, magazines, CDs, DVDs, and puzzles. Call 413-587-1019 or sign up at ForbesLibrary.org outreach. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock. HMP. And welcome to our show. I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And I'm thrilled. Um, you know, yesterday I had a conversation um, with our guest today. And as a result of that, I went back and I reread an article that was in The Atlantic, uh, written by Elizabeth King. And I just want to re read the first... Uh, few sentences of it. The tomboy, she wrote, conjures an image of a girl in overalls and baseball hats and wearing short hair and nondescript shoes. She probably isn't into Barbie. When the term tomboy first appeared in the mid-16th century, it actually was a name for male children who were rude and boisterous. And by the 1590s, the word underwent a shift towards its current feminine usage quote, a wild, romping girl, a girl who acts like a spirited boy. And by the late 19th and 20th century, the tomboy was everywhere, dovetailing with women's suffrage and first wave feminism and used to describe a girl who was into sports. Well, speaking of girls into sports, we have with us today in the studio, Sherry Webb. She's a legend in this region. She joined the coaching staff of Mount Holyoke's first, uh, excuse me, field hockey team, but that was after a 38-year career at Smith Academy, which is one of the smallest high schools in Massachusetts. And while at Smith Academy, Coach Webb, she coached the field hockey, basketball, softball teams. She won four state championships in two different sports. And you really are a legend, Sherry Webb. Well, thank you. I had some legendary athletes, not tomboys, playing for me. Exactly. And I, I think the reason I went back and reread that, and I remember that from The Atlantic, is because you said to me, Let's get rid of this word, tomboy. Let's call them athletes, which is what they are. Exactly. Yeah. So 
Let's talk about that. I, I really wanted to have you on. I'm so grateful that you came because um, the more I watch women's sports today, the more I realize, what are we doing? We're paying so much attention. For example, in basketball, what happens above the rim, but what happens below the rim? In the women's collegiate level, I'm not sure about high school because I've aged out of that, <laughs> but um, incredible athletes are playing who are women. Yes, outstanding athleticism being demonstrated everywhere you look now in women's sports. Um, I think about how much games have changed over my career due to the athleticism demonstrated by these young women and the, the improvement in coaching, conditioning, the doors that are open for them. Uh, there's some athleticism that people would find remarkable. And we talked a little bit earlier about the shoot, just the pure shooting alone particularly at the college level, that's where we see it the most, their shooting is so much better than it was 10 years ago. They've gotten so much stronger. Their conditioning is better. Uh, it's, it's a different game. It's a different game. I remember in high school, you know, the girls would be in physical education class, and they'd wear those little bloomers or whatever you call them, and the score would be 11 to 9. And now I watch these women who are extraordinary athletes. And, and so... During the course of your career, you've seen this change happen. But um, why do you think we don't pay, we, all of us who love sports, love the mission of sports to teach more than just how to play a game? Why do you think we undervalue the women's game? I'm not sure that it's so much directed at the women's game. I think we need to take a broader look. High school athletics simply does not get the media attention it once did. It, it used, I just came from reading a couple of newspapers on my way in. The high school sports is less than a page. Mm. And it used to be, it was the coverage for our local newspapers and for our local radio stations and television stations. High school athletics got so much more attention, boys and girls, than they do now. And that's, that's the foundation. That's where it begins. That's not just where athletes begin, that's where fans begin. Does that mean, Coach Sherry Webb, that we're paying too much attention to the collegiate and pro games at the expense of our own kids? Are we? That's I, my question. I think, I think we need to look at that. We need to examine it. Our kids, nothing thrills a kid more than having a parental unit or a family friend showing up and cheering. for a game. And, and after the game, I'm so proud of you and you've done so well and hugging their sweaty little bodies and telling them that you love them. What's better than that? Really? What is better than that? that and that's, they love that. They love having that attention and, and being recognized for how hard they're working and how much they've improved. So it's changed. Well, I remember when I was in high school and younger and they talked about uh, sports not just for fun, but it's a way to you learn to work with other people, certainly self-discipline dis and those sorts of stuff. As a coach, um, what does that mean to see to you to see girls learning those skills? I, lo I love it. I love being that one more adult in a child's life, mm. one more adult that maybe sets the path for some young person. Uh, I, I miss teaching at the high school and middle school level. Those kids brought so much energy, and they look to the adults around them for guidance in all sorts of areas. And athletics helps to, to provide that one more adult. I have a question. Does the interest 
in sports, high school sports, as well as college sports, vary by geographic area in this country. I mean, so much we hear about how uh, Friday nights in Texas for uh, boys football is just, I mean, the whole town comes out. And I think we have some of that here, but I'm not, we do. I mean, I've been to some Northampton high school football games, but uh, I'm not sure that it's the same level of interest. I wonder what your thoughts are about that. Well, I cannot speak for the entirety of the country, of course, but there are certain areas of the country where dedication and loyalty to a high school team, come on, the Beach Boys, be true to your school. Come on now. (laughs) Be true to your school was a lifetime commitment. Uh, I used to see a lot more grandparents at high school games out here than I do now. Uh, there are other things to do. There are other things that interest people now. And it may be that the population is more mobile, more transient. Absolutely. That, uh, that people did, unlike uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago, uh, most of Northampton did not necessarily, most of Northampton did, in fact, attend the Northampton schools. Certainly. Maybe people here now didn't attend Northampton High, and there's, although their kids might, there's less allegiance that way. Far less allegiance far less allegiance, and people are so much more diverse in terms of their interests. But you must also consider fewer and fewer young people are participating in athletics now. There was a time at Smith Academy where 72% of the population was somehow involved in athletics. I am sure it does not reach that now. It may be close. Smith Smith Academy is an anomaly. But I see it at, at schools everywhere. I serve on a couple committees where we look at high schools now in our area reaching out to, to form co-op teams or have middle school waivers because so many of our kids are not participating. Smith Academy, by the way, for those of our listeners who don't know where it is, is just tell us. In the fine municipality, population 3,040 in Hatfield, Massachusetts. And it's the public school. It is the public school for the town of Hatfield. It is the smallest public school by population in the state. And it was the arch rival in basketball of my son's the Mohawk team. Year after year, they ended up... Oh, uh, really? They were a rival? Yeah, he was a rival. Luke Please. Ryan and... Our, oh, Lukey. Lukey. He was just on a show yesterday talking about amazing things that he's doing now as an attorney. He's, he's an amazing. amazing young man. He is, and he was an amazing young player. And, uh, and he was a terror in physical education class. I had to make up rules to prevent him from figuring out the best way to win every damn time. Hold it. I'm taking notes right here <laughs> to throw back on him. Um, you know, one of the things, uh, I'm a bit of a social critic, and I can't help but notice that while girls are encouraged to participate more, what's happening in terms of coaching? What's happening in terms of uh, officials? Are we seeing more females in those positions? No, we are not. How, yeah. how do we break that glass ceiling? Well, women have to give back to that part of their life that has given so much to them. But still, it's a societal issue. Women have expectations of their behavior beyond athletics, which are different from what men have for expectations. Immediately, uh, a high-level male athlete retires, and the question, are you going to coach? Are you going to coach? Are you going to coach? And so many women... We just women, saw that in, in football with the Houston uh, Texans, yeah. So, na- so, you know, but now women are 
LPGA pros leave to have families, mm. not to go on teaching or giving back to the sport, although I'm sure many of them do in their own ways, our societal parameters guide women down a different path. I have to ask you about Brittany Griner mm -hmm. and about the fact that women, these high-level, beautiful players in professional basketball have to go elsewhere in order to make a living at, at their, their game. And going elsewhere in, includes the fact that the WNBA, which should be our highest level of female athletic performance in basketball, doesn't have enough teams to support the amount of talent. Kids are graduating. Sam Breen from UMass, clearly a name we all know in this area, and just she's a terrific player. We don't know if there is room on a, on a WNBA team for a player of that stature because they What are the UMass women right now, 18 and 4 or something yeah, like that yeah. as opposed to the men? Yeah. First place in the A-10, uh, won their conference tournament last year. That program is moving in the right direction, but their best player may not have a professional life in this country in the sport that she loves. Yeah. Yeah. So oh, she the WNBA players buzz are traveling commercial rather than charter. Whereas you do not want to put an NBA team on anything but a charter. Yeah. So there I mean there are enough differences in our own country. So we have a couple of minutes before we take a break and I want to know as a coach at Mount Holyoke with all those fine young women, uh, how do you get that message across about giving back? How do you get it? You mention it. You know, you get them involved even now when, when we have camps or even one-day clinics. Encourage our players to be a part of that and maybe catch the bug a little bit for teaching and coaching. Um, there are things in their lives which may predetermine their path but let's at least plant the seed that maybe there's something there. That is a great place to stop. Take a break for a few minutes. We're going to be back with Coach Sherry Webb. And uh, once again, I'm so glad that you're here with us in Happy studio. We'll be right back with Coach right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. For the first time in the history of the country and of the history of the United States, the Supreme Court has taken away a constitutional right. I would also describe this day as a day when women in the United States and people who can become pregnant have become second-class citizens. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. That stabbing pain in your neck that keeps you up at night. Ugh. The creaking noise you hear while climbing the stairs. Well, if you ruled out that your neck pain isn't your partner, and the creaking noise isn't the stairs, and it's your knee, maybe it's time to make an appointment with the physical therapy team at New England Orthopedic Surgeons. And at New England Orthopedic Surgeons Physical Therapy, you don't have to be a patient to set up an appointment. Whatever you need, the physical therapist at New England Orthopedic Surgeons will work with your primary care doctor to ensure you're getting the exact treatment for your injury and severity of pain. Physical therapy can be a great option if surgery isn't. 
call or go online to set up your appointment today at a location near you in Northampton, East Longmeadow, Springfield, Feeding Hills, or Ludlow and get physical with New England Orthopedic Surgeons Physical Therapy. Right in your town, maybe even in your neighborhood, an immigrant is building a new life, trying to find their way, all while learning a new language. The International Language Institute offers free English classes for immigrants and refugees, for true beginners and others, like students in our Bridge to College and Careers program. One of the nation's top language schools is right here, with free English classes for immigrants and refugees. The International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. So during the break uh, with Coach Sherry Webb, uh, Dan Torres has a very interesting question. Uh, and what he asks you is, with all of your coaching experience, different sports, different generations of kids, what's the one theme that you saw repeated uh, despite those differences? And very quickly, I said, kids just want to get better. They, I love that answer. They what's that mean? want to get better every day at whatever that they want to see and feel improvement and have you acknowledge that they're improving. I mean, there are very few great athletes and I've been privileged to coach some of the best ever to come out of the Valley. I could never take away from them how, what talent they had. But my true privilege was coaching kids who were not blessed with athletic skills, but we're blessed with the drive and determination to get better every day and to be coached. And I see that in kids today. They just want to get better. They don't always have the internal self-motivation that kids used to have. And I'm not sure that was all internal. That might have been a little extrinsic from the parental involvement. But nonetheless, getting better was a goal. I think I want to ask you a question that stems from my personal experience. I was lucky because I was obsessed with getting better. Uh, but when I, I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, and I played baseball and I wrestled. But when I played baseball, you know, we would take 24 kids. Mm -hmm. Well, we'd have like 45 kids that would go out for the team. And the other 20, they were, it was worse than just not making it. They were ridiculed. They were picked on. It was like a different kind of situation. Do we still see that in high school today where kids are just, the level of bullying and meanness manifests itself in the athletic realm? Uh, uh, in my experience at Smith Academy, we didn't have cuts. If you wanted to participate, you did. Different than Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, yeah, significantly, I would guess. But I, I, think I love that, by the way. We've got to find a way for kids who want to be active and want to compete We've got to find levels for them. We must. Um, our, our country is in a difficult spot, so we need to take care of that. Well, the coach is going to have to go to detention because she left her phone on in studio. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> the, the minions. This is, this is, I'm hearing you on the radio, Coach. What are you doing? <laughs> I saw you on TV yesterday, and today you're on the radio. I love that. I'm my coach tour. is famous. <laughs> yeah, I'm on tour. No, I, I wish listeners could have seen your face when I told that story about kids being cut and, and, and then being picked on, and you... Wincing would be an understatement yeah. as to what it what it yeah. There, for you. there are difficult things in life that kids need 
to understand it's not a personal reflection upon them, but kids shouldn't be hurt. They just shouldn't. Here, here. Coach Webb, we just met. Yes, sir. But sitting here, watching you, listening to you, I can see why you are an inspiring coach, oh, why you. you are a great coach. And I, I'm asking you to actually not be self-deprecating at this point. I'd like to know what goes into making a great coach. Great kids. <laughs> I think something you have to recognize as a coach, if you win, it's because you have really good athletes. If you lose, it's the coach's fault. <laughs> Just accept it. Just accept it. That that's how it is. And I've told many young coaches that I have mentored that very thing. When you win, you have good kids. When you lose, it's bad coaching. So get better. Just get better. And what coalesces a team? What, what allows you as a coach to make these individual kids who may or may not have relationships before the season starts to come together as a group? Because that's the thing that just so inspires me when I see high school sports. They are a team. They are a team. They become a team. And many times um, it's because they're so mad at the coach that they <laughs> coalesce and they become a group united against that one person. But eventually that turns. We're united against that coach, but we've gotten better and we're doing better. So now we're united for that coach who made us get better. Yeah, I love your question, Bill. And, yeah. But I just want to transport it to three different sports. You coached basketball. Yes, sir. You coached softball. You co coached field hockey. Uh, I coached kids. Go ahead. I'm all I ears. I coached kids. And I, I, one of the proudest moments of my career was having a young man who was quite a good soccer goalie and is now quite a good dad uh, out in Arizona. Um, hug me in the receiving line at graduation and say, I wish I had once played for you. Yeah. What's better than that? Yeah. That's as good as it gets, really. Yeah. So, you, I mean, I, you just you invest in those kids and their families. Families are so important as well. Are college students, female athletes in college, more or less coachable? in your experience than high school students? That's an individual thing. Some of them, when, when you, when I coached at the high school level, I had those kids perhaps in my class, in PE, in kindergarten. So they knew what the rules were. They knew what the expectations were. They knew my vocabulary and the vocabulary for different activities. Now we get um, college athletes coming in who are unfamiliar sometimes with expectations and unfamiliar with the vocabulary involved in, in playing a game successfully. So the high school kids, I felt like I brought them along. They knew me. They understood me. The college kids come in from all over the world and trying to get them to all to understand what we're talking about when we're introducing drills and, and demanding skills and, and demanding performance. They don't have the vocabulary always. There's an enormous devotion of time and energy from high school athletes, college athletes, to athletics. Do you think that endorses and helps their academic achievement, or do you think it detracts from it? 
oh my God, it improves their academic achievement incredibly because of the time commitment they have for what they enjoy doing, they know they have to make time for the academic piece. And their scheduling and their discipline is better and better and better the more demands that are put upon them. I have always taken great pride in the fact that at Smith Academy, on graduation day, there would be three student speakers. Every year that I was there, at least one of them was one of my athletes. So I, you know, that academic achievement, or you look at National Honor Societies from schools across the area, look at what else they do. It's, it's a whole process, the whole student. Sherry Webb, it really is moving for me because um, I was, I was, uh, I could tell you bad stories about coaches that I had, wrestling coach down in Atlanta, Absolutely. et cetera, et cetera. I mean, racist and yes, just yes, awful. Yes. But I, I, I don't mean to be sappy. The love that you have for your kids is just filling this studio. I wonder if the kids learn to love each other and learn to love themselves by virtue of taking part in participatory sports. I believe they did and do. Um, we, we said a lot of I love you's during our seasons um, for different reasons, sometimes mockingly, sometimes with big smiles on our faces, sometimes in sorrow. Um, but I've, I feel like they did love each other. I wonder if female athletes are more open to that than male athletes. They're more open to a lot of things than male athletes. <laughs> <laughs> and you know it and I know it. <laughs> Yeah, I wanted to bring that question right back into me. Before. <laughs> Coming right back at you, sir. <laughs> you did beg for it. Sherry Webb, I can't thank you enough for being with us today. Um, I really hope to focus more on our show, Talk to Talk, on uh, female sports in general and certainly on what happens here in the Valley. And um, I think that you have made an incredible dent in um, n not only gender prejudice but uh, also just in girls feeling that they, they could be successful in life and you must have touched literally thousands of people I, I hope so men and women really Mount Holyoke is happy is I'm sure they're lucky to have you with them coaching still thank this you. day thank, thank you. you for joining us my pleasure we're going to be back with Jeff Napolitano and um, he's got a really interesting um, thing to talk to us about today we'll be right back after these messages thank you Sherry Webb This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Warming centers are open today and tomorrow for people to come in out of the cold. The Greenfield Public Library will be open today and tomorrow. The Johnson Community Center in Greenfield will be open today from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. In Northampton, the Manic Community Center on Elm Street is open today and tomorrow from 9 to 4 and Sunday from noon to 4. The Northampton Senior Center is open today from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. And the lobby at the Northampton Police Department is open 24-7.
Search committee members agreed this week to advance a pair of out-of-state finalists for the top job at UMass Amherst. More than six months after officials launched a screening process to select the next chancellor for the University of Massachusetts System's flagship campus, the search committee voted unanimously to advance University of Illinois Chicago interim chancellor Javier Reyes and Oklahoma State University College of Engineering, Architecture, and Technology Dean Paul Tokalski to the final round. Both candidates plan to visit the Amherst campus in the coming weeks. Joan Holiday, WHMP News. And next Wednesday, February 8th, the town of Irving will be hosting a community conversation with MassDOT on the reconstruction and improvements to Route 2 in the Farley area from Old State Road through Mountain Road. Safety concerns will be the focus of the meeting, particularly around Holmes Avenue in the intersections between Farley Village and Route 2. Mostly sunny, windy, and very cold today. Actual high temperatures will happen this morning, and the teens will be in the single digits potentially as early as noon, with the wind making it feel like it's below zero all day. Mostly clear, windy, with temperatures feeling like they're in the 20s and 30s below zero tonight. Actual air temperature of 8 below to 14 below. Mostly sunny, less wind on Saturday, a high of 14 to 18. Mostly cloudy, back into the 40s on Sunday. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you get the best local and organic produce, a butcher shop, wine and cheese shop, fresh seafood, and hundreds of bulk herbs, spices, and more. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you create hundreds of union jobs and generate over $7 million in purchases from local farms and businesses. River Valley Co-op is your food hub, bringing you the best from around the valley and world while supporting your neighbors and local farmers. Shop River Valley Co-op in Northampton and East Hampton today. River Valley. Co-op. It happens all over Massachusetts. In every home and every community. Be careful on your bike. Learning can happen anytime, anywhere. We'll see you at practice this weekend. And no matter how learning takes place in your family's life, Desi is there as your partner. The Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Never stop learning. Find out more at mass.gov slash back to school. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department for Elementary and Secondary Education. Why do the same old thing to celebrate Valentine's Day? Kelsey Flynn here inviting you to join me, Tara Brewster, and the one and only Monty Belmonte, East Hampton Mayor Nicole LaChapelle, DA Dave Sullivan, and Zara Bodie from the Sweetback Sisters to the Big Love Little Performances Benefit for CHD's Big Brothers Big Sisters of Hampshire County. This lip sync karaoke contest has everything to woo your Valentine or make it a Galentine's Day. Buy tickets or enter to perform at runreg.com forward slash big love little performances. It's all happening on Thursday, February 9th at the Boylston Rooms in East Hampton. Be there and share the love for Big Brothers Big Sisters of Hampshire County. Check it out on Facebook. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And thanks for listening to Talk the Talk. We are here with uh, a regular correspondent, Jeff Napolitano, who always has a good thing to tell us about. Do you have a good thing for us today? Well, I do have a good thing. Um, I have a bad thing first, but um, we do have uh, some uh, of my interview with uh, Connell Hetty, who is the co-chair of the River Valley DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America. We're going to get to that a little bit more in um, our second segment 
But first, I've got a bad thing. I've got uh, a thing that uh, was pretty striking to me, and I couldn't believe it when I first read about it. I first uh, read about this on Twitter last week. And this was a bill that has been filed that is on the House docket of the state of Massachusetts. It's House docket number 3822. And to summarize, um, it is a, it's actually not a long bill, but it is a plan to harvest the bone marrow and the organs of prisoners in Massachusetts in exchange for time off of their sentences. Um, the, the, the act is actually called um, the, an, the, an act to establish the Massachusetts Incarcerated Individual Bone Marrow and Organ Donation Program. It is introduced by, sponsored by Carlos Gonzalez, who is a state rep in the 10th Hamden uh, District, uh, Bud Williams, also in Western Massachusetts, he's the 11th Hampton District. Uh, Judith uh, Garcia, who is, uh, Gar Judith Garcia and, and Russell Holmes, who are both um, from Suffolk uh, districts in, in Boston. Um, but Carlos Gonzalez is the main petitioner of this bill, which would, and I'm reading directly from it, establish a bone marrow and organ donation program within the Department of Correction and a bone marrow and don organ donation committee that will allow eligible incarcerated individuals to gain not less than 60 and not more than 365 day reductions in the length of their committed sentences in Massachusetts. Um, so this is a clear, I think, quid, uh, I'm not a lawyer, I think we, we got a couple in the room, but that sounds like a quid pro quo where you give us your kidney or your bone marrow or a lung or something, and we'll give you maybe up to a, a half a year or a year off of your sentence. I think there's so much that's striking and horrific. And by the way, I hadn't heard of this is the first I'm hearing about this. So thank you for bringing it to our attention. But you, in terms of public safety, it's okay to let you go. We're not worried that you're going to commit another crime. But while we got you, let's squeeze out a couple organs from you. There's there's so many levels of sort of dystopian just horror that is in this in this uh, story in this act, um, and and luckily, the the this has actually now you can say officially gone worldwide because the BBC picked up this story and they ran this, um, and they uh, they have in quoted in their article that they that they put out. Um, Kevin Ring, who is the president of the nonprofit organization Families Against Mandatory Minimums. It seems, he said, like something out of a science fiction book or horror story. It's just this sort of idea that we have this class of subhumans whose body parts will harvest because they're not like us or because they're so desperate for freedom that be willing to do this. Um, in his defense, if this is what you can call it, State Representative Carlos Gonzalez had said that he was inspired by a close friend who has stage four kidney failure and requires dialysis. He said, quote, I love my friend and I'm praying through this legislation that we can extend the chances of life for him and any other person in a similar life or death situation, he said. So he has a friend who needs, who needs a kidney and he, Carlos would like to take them from uh, prisoners in Massachusetts. In a coercive kind of way. Yeah, sure. I mean... Either we it, keep you, or here's a little window of I mean, it's really hard to argue that there there isn't some sort of coercive um, uh, position that prisoners that are held against their will by the state in, you know, in, in cages 
um, that 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 isn't coercive. That we're going to start you know taking their body parts. But but there's a couple of levels to this. First of all, all of the petitioners of this are folks of color, uh, state representatives of color, um, and. I think it's pretty well established at this point that the people who are incarcerated are quite disproportionately folks of color and quite disproportionately uh, folks who um, have certainly, let's say, just been born with with less favorable circumstances um, that have, you know, forced them to to um, or at least pushed them towards the the system of incarceration. So, what do you think? You think it's it's just an irony that the sponsors of this bill yes. are themselves people of color? It, and it is an irony. It is also a horror. I would say um, the uh, the, uh, the the kind of discussion we're having in Memphis right now, right? Right. Right. Oh yeah. Sure. Absolutely. Um, the in in Massachusetts, there's an organization uh, called Black and Pink, uh, which supports uh, queer folks and HIV positive folks. Um, in prison, and the executive director there said uh, that, you know, this just smacks as unethical and depraved. They're a marginalized group in society. To incentivize the selling of your body parts in exchange for the most precious commodity in the commodity in the world, which is t- this time on earth and your freedom, was just so appalling. Um, and I have to say that, like, the other level that of this is that, my God, a year like a, you get 365, no less than 60, and no more than 365 days reduced in your length of uh, a sentence. So, you know, you can give for your an kidney organ. for yeah. right for right. a kidney a year. My God, not only is this like racist and predatory and horrific, but it's they're also so cheap. My God, I, I, and oh, I, so I, I'm actually sort of speechless um, at this point about it. I I don't know. What should or could happen? I, I, I think that these people should be censured or kicked off of the, out of the state legislature for, for proposing something that's so horrific. But I'll leave that to their colleagues in the state house to, to deal with that. Yeah. yeah. Well, obviously, you said that it, the bill is H3822. Yes. Uh, Carlos Gonzalez is a principal yep. sponsor. Yes. Um, it, it sounds like listeners who are as affronted by this as uh, we are here in the studio can get busy and send some notices to the people who represent them and to Carlos Gonzalez, Representative Gonzalez, yep. that uh, about what you think about this uh, sort of. I think it's very coercive. If, if you know you're you're imprisoned, and you feel like you know it's just all you're looking for is some hope. All you're looking for is a little window of hope, and somebody makes an offer like this, and you say, "Well, knock a year, a year, no less than sixty days, no, no more, more than, than a year, three sixty-five. Oh off my sentence and and you know it's it's might be tantalizing to someone but it's horrifying to the rest of us yeah i think so i think that's correct yeah anyway um i'm want to thank you for that good thing jeff (laughs) right right well let let me pivot to the the good work that's going on um and this is done by river valley democratic socialists of america um there's i had a a long conversation with connell hetty who is the co-chair of that organization um, this is the, you know, River Valley DSA is, is our DSA in, in the Valley here. That's our chapter. Um, we don't have any, uh, Alexandria, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's that have arisen from this chapter, but, but, you know, we can always, we can always hope for that. Um, I had a conversation with Connell about the work that they were doing. Um, and, uh, this is sort of how he explained what they're up to. 
All right. Uh, uh, Jeff, thank you for having me on, uh, first of all. And the DSA, like you were saying, it's um, so Democratic Socialists of America. It's an organization that has chapters all over the country. Um, we have members. We're in you know the sort of three counties up and down the river, right? So um, there's a lot of folks in Hampshire County, then also down in Ham uh, Hampton and Franklin. Um, we've got a lot of great folks everywhere. There's about, let's say, like 350 of us. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a bunch of people that we're a big tent organization. So it's not like all, everyone all thinks one particular thing exactly the same, but, you know, we all have some kind of agreement that capitalism is, you know, a problem that needs to end somehow one way or another. And that, you know, we're all trying to make some sort of working class movement to to end it. I think we're just, you know, getting getting ready for another really great year. We've got, um, you know, I think we've we've been uh, sort of, I think COVID really hit a lot of like organizing uh, groups like really hard in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, I think we're just really starting to hit our stride coming back from that um, in terms of the rebounding as an organization. You know, like I think just we've got a lot of upward momentum right now. So that was Connell Hetty, the co-chair of the River Valley DSA. Uh, more of that interview with Connell will be next. Uh, after this break, you're listening to The Good Work on Talk the Talk. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Tag, you're it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman Program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1015-1400-1240-WHMP. Do you know what's going on in business in Western Mass? You do if you read Business West. Find out which companies are growing, which companies are innovating. Learn about people on the move, people taking the lead. Every issue of Business West is packed with business news, including incorporations, building permits, real estate transactions, and bankruptcies. Pick up a copy or read Business West online. The vital business news is in Business West, the business journal of Western Mass. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Weinzick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Weinzick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and online at weinzicknursery.com. This week's Shop Tuesday is Slancha. This Tuesday at 9 a.m., Slancha releases gift certificates for their restaurant in Holyoke. High up on Jarvis Avenue with a view of Holyoke and beyond, good food and drink, lunch and dinner daily. Plus, a private upstairs party room with a bar. They say it on the old sod and they say it in Holyoke. Slancha, available this Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. We believe in the boundless potential of young people. 
At Junior Achievement of Western Massachusetts, it inspires our work to prepare Western Massachusetts youth for real-world career and financial success. We offer in-school financial literacy and career exploration programs and after-school young entrepreneur initiatives. JA is committed to the future of youth throughout Western Massachusetts. To learn more about Junior Achievement or to participate as a school, volunteer, or supporter, visit jawm.org. A little bit of hammering and a little bit of humoring. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Home improvement ideas and advice. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Sundays at noon, 1015, 1400, and 1240. WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And welcome back to the show. We're here with Jeff DePolisano, who's talking about good things. Yes, and um, I was able to speak with Connell Hetty, who is the co-chair of the River Valley DSA, Democratic Socialists of America, and we talked about their current and their past work, and here's part of that conversation right now. Let's see, we've got an electoral committee, um, so that's all of our sort of, you know, what most people think of, like, political activity, right? Like, you know, sort of, like, elections and canvassing, that sort of thing. So last year, we decided on a priority campaign together. Um, and that was, it was, it was called the People's Ballot. It was to work on different different ballot initiatives together, um, a set of them. Um, and one of them was, I think, the Fair Share Amendment. Yes, yes. The, which, um, which succeeded, which yes. you, you, you won. Yes, it was, you know, um, you know, obviously this was a, a really big statewide thing. So I'm not sitting here saying that we did that all ourselves, of course. Um, but it was very nice to be a part of like a big, a big movement that actually, you know, had a very successful campaign. That was great. And then we were working on different local level Medicare for all questions, which were, you know, in different, in different like precincts for like uh, to tell their state representative on like the state level, we want you to vote to support like a Massachusetts level Medicare for all. And what do you know? Those one people would like to have Medicare for all. Like, and was people... that was um, I didn't closely track the results of it. I think I sort of peripherally saw it, but I think they basically all won in every yeah, place yeah. that they were. They were presented to the voters. Yeah. Um, and again, so this wasn't in every place, like not everyone had right. it on their ballot. But yes, the places that won, it was all, it, they all won. Again, that was with the, the Mass Care Coalition. So again, a lot of lot of people across the state, a lot of different groups like pitching in to work together on that. And then so the last thing that we ended up working on was a late addition. So the driver's license bill, there was this long process that people fought for a long time to allow undocumented people here to uh, to get a license. And that had actually gone and become a law here. But then there was this real, you know, reactionary campaign to like sort of get that struck out to try to uh, get rid of it with a ballot measure. Um, and that also won and was very successful. So we were very happy to be a part of that um, because that, you know, it makes such a difference to people that people have to drive, you have to get your kid to school. And so, yeah, we were very, very, very happy to see that one win as well. And I, I know in Western Massachusetts, I heard one of the, the sort of organizers from the, at the state level were actually saying that DSA canvassing for that was actually one of the most active uh, groups was DSA in Western Mass on that issue. Oh, 
Yeah, very excited to hear that. Um, yeah, it, I mean, it certainly, you know, if people got, you know, very fired up about that, like we, this very routine thing, like uh, driving to work, you know, we need transit that helps everyone, but we just, you know, just the reality of it is people have to drive. So yeah, we, we were very uh, excited that like all of the things that we worked on, everything actually was very successful at the, the ballot box last November. One of our very active committees is um, the labor committee. So we have I mean, I think even even among socialist groups, I think our chapter in particular has like very high union uh, density. So um, people are very active in their unions and organizing in that way. Um, and so we've got, you know, you know, people that you know, we help people do go to different trainings that we help put on with other labor organizers in the area. Um, like last year we had a big May Day event with um, the Western Mass Area Labor Federation and some other folks. That was a lot of fun. Um, we had big potluck. There was a canvas. Uh, then there was like a, you know, organize your workplace 101 training um, that a lot of people came to. And um, so, yeah, that, that was really great. Um, and, you know, a lot of it is also, you know, just sort of labor solidarity, like showing up for people um, when, you know, like we, we want to be there, like, you know, we're going to the different, uh, you know, the different teachers that have been trying to get contracts, um, like the, over the last little bit, like the St. Vincent strike out in Worcester, that was a really big one that we got out to. Yeah. So we've got, you know, really great people like, uh, trying to do a lot of work. So that was Connell Hetty, who is the co-chair of the River Valley DSA. And we spoke about the work that they have done in the recent past and also the campaigns that they're choosing and going forward with uh, right now. And they're actually in the process within their organization of, of figuring out what their next pieces of work uh, are going to be. And this is that conversation. Uh, we're in the process of picking our priority campaign for this year, so I can't exactly say I can promise you we'll be doing this exact thing for the year, but we'll know soon, you know, whatever it is going to be. Uh, I think it's uh, it's going to be really great. And do you have uh, examples of the sort of campaigns that are in the running? We've got a proposal for a, let's see, it's called Strike Ready D RVDSA is the sort of external campaign, really formalizing the a commitment to and kind of the the you know the labor movement around us as the priority for the year you know that's a sort of like mix of you know helping people to organize their workplaces by you know running different trainings and helping them out with that you know maybe connecting members who are in you know similar industries you know also just really getting ready for a lot of uh, labor strike solidarity i think people are you know very fired up for the ups contract campaign is coming up that's just like a really big deal for us on, on our radar to be ready to you know support the workers in in whatever that looks like i think it's gonna it's gonna be a another uh red hot labor summer <laughs> if uh it's what they were calling it last year yeah we can't yeah. get enough of those yeah and yeah other things are you know include um sort of really mapping out the the different precincts and like uh different sort of like local races that are kind of good possibilities to run candidates in that's and one thing that 
I wanted to touch upon, which is that unlike, for instance, the Green Party, which is, you know, a formal electoral party, uh, the DSA actually has members that are in Congress, like not just at the state levels, but actually in Congress. And I think everybody knows Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and um, members of the squad and so forth. And so I'm just wondering, can you explain to folks who have only sort of heard of DSA in passing um, the distinction between the work that DSA does versus like the Green Party or the Democrats, for instance? Yeah, so uh, yeah, so we are not a political party officially, like we're a political organization. And, you know, there's a sort of range of opinions, obviously, in the organization about, you know, you know, so, a range of within yeah, I mean, not, not all socialists are on the same page about how to you know oh you wouldn't believe it anyway so it's sort of outside of that sort of like ballot like we don't have a ballot line that we kind of have like the green party does um but you know so people that are active in dsa and like become a candidate and um they get endorsed by their chapter you know, some of them run on like a Democratic Party ballot line. Um, some of them run as independents. It's, you know, kind of up to whatever makes sense, like for, you know, for you and your your chapter. Again, it's like, yeah, it's uh, a political organization, sort of not exactly its own party, but, um, but certainly, you know, people across the country all trying to work on this together. And that, that's another, I think, positive, powerful aspect of DSA, which is that it's comprised of chapters, not just in the Valley or the state, but actually all across the United States. And yeah. from from that, there's there's just inherently power in, in some juice that the organization has just because there's such a, a scale. Yeah. Um, that there's like this national uh, version of the DSA and then there's all these individual chapters. Yeah, there's a lot of helping each other out like across, you know, state lines. Um, it's really cool to be a part of an organization that like reaches all over the place like that. that if somebody in Western Massachusetts is so inclined and they want to get involved, what is the best way for people to participate, join, get involved with DSA? RVDSA.org is our website. Um, so you can go there, you know, see our calendar, contact us. You can also you know, email the sort of steering committee of the chapter directly, EC at rvdsa.org but yeah if you go to rvdsa.org you'll see get a look at our schedule see kind of what we're working on you can join dsa so again we're a national organization so uh so you do join through the national organization and then the, and then you'll your zip code will get you sorted to us we would love to have people on board yeah a lot of really exciting work coming up this year either way, we'll hope to see you out there so that was Connell Hetty, the co-chair of the River Valley DSA, and uh, I'm Jeff Napolitano, and we spoke about the work that that organization is doing, and um, it was sort of impressive. I thought the big takeaway for me was that how the River Valley DSA actually works with other organizations and in other coalitions, and a lot of the work is the coalition work, and um, that's that's promising, and they've done good stuff, and that is today's, uh, this week's good work. It is really interesting. Um, so, Jeff, uh, I, I just want to, before we break, I just want to point out the two House Republicans were caught saying that the uh, expulsion of Ilhan Omar, the removal was, quote, the stupidest vote in the world, and then begging reporters, please don't quote us, please. We'll lose our committee seats if you quote us. So reporters reported the two Republicans said that, but not what their names are. What a country. Oh. 
uh, yeah, I, I have no, no comment. No comment. Jeff, thank you so much for what you bring to us all the time. Bill, another good week. Thank you, Buzz. Thank you. See you on Talk the Talk on Monday. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Are you an immigrant worried about your future? Do you want to change your life? At Center for New Americans, you can take English classes for free. They help immigrants with jobs, licenses, healthcare, as well as immigration and citizenship. CNA helps you create a better future. Visit our website at cnam.org. Call 413-587-0084. AA made all the difference in my life. I noticed that most of the goals I had as a kid were slipping by. I didn't feel like the person I hoped to be. After all those years of drinking, I I really didn't know myself. When I was out there drinking, I was always looking for the next great party to make me feel all right. With AA. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 11 